The woman you are about to meet believes that a woman's education and financial health are the keys not only to her success story, but to the success of her family. Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. She holds a bachelor's degree and four master's degrees, two from the prestigious Sloan School of Management at MIT and two from Brandeis University. She has spent her career in finance and is the co-founder and the CEO of the Women's Foundation of Boston. Her name is Christina Gordon, and this is her story. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us about the mission of WF Boston. What's the goal? The goal of Women's Foundation of Boston is to raise funds and use those dollars to create and fund economically empowering programming for greater Boston women and girls, primarily women and girls who live in underserved communities. $4.4 million in grant money so far has been distributed to nonprofits serving women and girls. I can only imagine how many nonprofits reach out to you for help. So how do you and your team choose which ones to support? That's a great question, but I have to tell you now it's $6.1 million because we announced our new 2023 grant winners last week, and that was $1.7 million more to about 10 nonprofits that serve women and girls. So how we decide is a very, very quantitative and qualitative process that our grant cycle committee goes through. We're very data-driven businesswomen, and we created a database of all the women and girls serving nonprofits in greater Boston. From that database, we have about 75 that we invite every year to apply for grants. And how we get from the 200 to the 75 is they have to have $100,000 budget, three years of financials, they have to be their own 501c3, 85% of their programming has to be to women and girls, and they have to have some sort of economically empowering programming, which we define pretty broadly. Well, thousands and thousands and thousands of women and girls have been impacted thanks to WF Boston. Changing lives is a powerful thing. Do you have any success stories that you could share with us today? Oh, I have so many success stories. (laughs) I have so many favorites. You should see how you're smiling. It must feel so good, right, to make this kind of impact. Well, it does. We've impacted about 13,000 women and girls since we've begun. And, you know, we impact them in many, many, many different ways, small, medium, and large. One of the more interesting stories that I picked up from our impact data most recently was we fund financial literacy courses and for women beneath the poverty line and women in low-income situations. And these financial literacy courses have enormous impact on these women. And one of the graduates that came out of the courses that we funded was very intimidated about buying a home. And she took our home buying course that we funded through Women Money Matters, which is the nonprofit that runs this programming. And from that course, she gained enormous confidence. And, you know, I probably don't have to tell you this, Candy, but particularly single moms who are able to buy a condo or a home, the amount of impact that has on their living and their life as well as their children's is enormous. One of the proudest days of my life as a single mom was buying a home and passing papers and getting that key and putting it in the door and knowing that I did that all by myself. Mm -hmm. For many women, though, financial independence is not a strength or a priority. Instead, we often lean on men 
to guide us in these areas or take it over entirely? And I thought, since I have an expert here, I would ask, is this cultural? Where does this come from? Hmm. That's a (laughs) complicated question. (laughs) That's a very, very good question. Yes, I think it's cultural. I also think that it wasn't that long ago. Okay, so when I was a child, there were actual rules that were set up that women couldn't get a credit card without a signature from a man. Women who were lawyers in law firms then who got married no longer could work as a lawyer in the firm. So there's like a lot of these things that then built in to what thankfully doesn't exist now. So there's a lot of history, sadly, and even in our laws in a country like the United States that prevented women from having financial independence. But now we can do everything we want to do as long as we get educated. Education is the key. I was telling our listeners at the top of the show that you believe a woman's education and financial health are the keys not only to her success, but to the success of her family. It's actually true and it's factual. So women reinvest 90% of their incomes back into their families and communities. That's a fact. So there's a multiplier effect when women's financial independence grows. Also, when I was going to Brandeis and working on a master's in women's studies, I was focusing on women in work. But as all graduate students, I was forced to take a course outside of women in work. And I took a course on high-risk children. So I took this course, and I came out of that course with a data point, which was for high-risk children— The biggest variable for success was maternal education. And that is the one fact that I walked off of Brandeis' campus with in my back pocket after all of the research and all the studying I did in women and work. That statistic stuck with me. My mom was a teacher, my dad was a teacher, and my stepmother was a teacher. And education was always a primary goal in our family. So it all kind of tied and made sense. So if you educate a woman, all of her life variables improve as well as for her children. Well, we've shattered the glass ceiling, but there are still so many barriers for women in the workplace. What is your opinion and how can we work to change these barriers? Oh, these are complicated questions, but very, very important ones. So glass ceilings are being shattered every day. I think we can't underestimate every time a woman goes through a glass ceiling and becomes a leader in an area where there wasn't a woman, that has an enormous ripple effect. I know it did for me. When I graduated from college, I got a job, an awesome job at Fidelity Investments in their equity research department. And there was one woman portfolio manager, and I was so impressed with her. And she was so strong and such a role model. She just gave me and my female coworkers so much hope and inspiration to continue on and to work really hard. And coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, when we started the Women's Foundation of Boston seven years ago, we developed an advisory board. And then we got a formal board of trustees, formal board of directors. And I called her. Her name is Beth Tarana. I said, Beth, will you join our board of directors? And she was so thrilled when I told her that she was this role model to me and all the younger women, and she had no idea. And I said, my only regret is I didn't tell you. You've spent most of your adult life in the financial sector, which is gaining more women, but is still male-dominated. How do you make sure that your voice has been heard all along the way? 
a lot has changed. So I was an analyst. I went to business school at MIT, and then I went back into the investment industry, and I worked at Wellington. And one of the young women who worked along with me, her name was Jean Hines. She was just out of undergraduate, and she was a portfolio manager's assistant or an analyst assistant. And she was this great young woman, hardworking, really, really smart, thoughtful, funny, just a winner. Yep. But she was, you know, an analyst assistant. She was named CEO of Wellington Management last year. That is huge. That is so huge. So when I worked at Wellington, it was very few women and very few were in leadership roles. And now the CEO is a woman. And I just told her personally, I said, when I heard that you became CEO, I literally teared up. It was just a really big moment for me, but also I can't imagine how many women, thousands of women. So there's a lot to do. There's a lot of work to be done and a lot of ceilings to be broken. But there's a lot that has already been done. Let's go back to your undergraduate degree. Did you know what you wanted to do with your life when you were an undergraduate college student? No. (laughs) There's an honest answer right there for you. But I did know that I wanted to be financially independent. And my mom was a single mom. She worked really hard. She worked at night for H&R Block so she could afford to help us with our food and education and everything. She was a wonderful, wonderful provider. So I knew I wanted to be financially independent. I actually paid for the majority of my college education. I got a merit scholarship so that I could go to college. And my dad worked for McGraw-Hill in New York City. And so in the summers and winter breaks, I would go and work in New York City for McGraw-Hill. Well, it turns out McGraw-Hill owned Standard & Poor's. So Standard & Poor's is a bond rating agency. So I had this opportunity to work at Standard & Poor's as a summer intern, which was very unusual at the time. I think I was all a 20. So I had this wonderful job rating bonds. So I graduated from college with this bond rating experience. And so every financial institution wanted to interview me because I had the magic numbers as to how it's decided on bond ratings. And I didn't really have the magic number, but I I had the statistics. I never gave them away. You had been in the inner sanctum. Exactly. And I had a really good... GPA, and I worked really hard. So I had a lot of opportunities coming out of undergraduate. I accepted a job as an options trader in Chicago. I thought, wow, this is great. This is going to be fun. I'm going to make a lot of money. It was very, very male-dominated. It was only men. I think I was the only woman. And I took it. And this is before I graduated. And there is a point to this, which is there was a woman who spoke about women on Wall Street at, at Boston University, where I was an undergraduate. And I said, I'm going to go. I walked up to her after she spoke, and I said, you know, I have this job offer in Chicago as an options trader, and I accepted it, but I'm not sure it's the right choice. And she said, you need to work at Fidelity as a stock analyst, and I'm going to connect you. And she did. And I interviewed, and I got the job. And so I called O'Connor and Associates, which was the options trading firm in Chicago. In Chicago, and I said, guess what? I'm not coming I'm actually going to take this better job. And it turned out to be amazing and a wonderful experience and where I met all of my family and friends, essentially. My follow-up question is, have you been able to pass that along? Do you help other people now, too? 
I try to as much as possible, particularly women and particularly young women. I am lucky to have a daughter. She's an adult. She's 27. She's going to be 28 at the end of this month. And she has all these amazing young friends that she went to high school with. And several of them I've stayed in touch with and I'm now mentoring, which I feel really good about. Encouraging them to take risks, encouraging them to have the confidence to to really do bold things. These are really highly educated, strong, smart young women. And I'm like, you have the whole world in front of you. So really grab it. I've always been very good at leaning on people for advice and guidance. And it's actually an integral part of how I manage as a CEO. After the birth of your first child, you changed lanes just a bit and you went back to school to get another dual degree. You've got your Sloan School of Management degrees and then you went on to Brandeis for women's studies and sociology. What inspired you to make that decision? After my first child, I think I was actually pregnant with my second. I do have four children. I realized that I wanted to go back to work. I started getting involved with some nonprofits, and I realized that nonprofits were run by social activists, not business people. And as a result, they had tons of passion, but they weren't always able to get the impact that they wanted to because they weren't managing their organization like it was a business. And I thought, wow, this is great. I have all this business experience. All I need to do is get a master's in women's studies, and then I can use that to sort of help manage or run or strategize for feminist organizations. And I went to the, this is before the internet, I went to the library in the town that I was living in. I looked up in a giant, thick book that listed all universities and master's degrees and where you could get them. And there was two schools in the United States where you could get a master's in women's studies. And one of them was three miles from my house, <laughs> which was so bizarre. And I thought... Okay, I guess I'm going to apply to Brandeis. And I was the only part-time student. I was the only pregnant student. I was the only (laughs) pregnant student with children. I was the capitalist in the room of socialists. It was quite interesting. (laughs) You know, you've mentioned your four children, and I would love to ask you, how did motherhood change you, Christina? Hmm. I don't know. It's so profound. You know, motherhood is so profound. I feel so incredibly grateful to have uh, four children who are all adults now. And it changed me in that I had three boys and it gave me a lot of perspective about boys and how they're treated. I always knew how girls were treated stereotypically. And I never really fully appreciated that boys also experience that. And it's not fair either. Take us back to that moment when you thought, okay, I'm going to take all this experience, all this education, and a need to be involved in a nonprofit type setting. And you created WF Boston. Well, I am just one of four co-founders. So I want to make sure that that's clear. Amy Danoff and I originally started meeting at a Chinese restaurant called CK Shanghai, um, <laughs> which gets a lot of press on my when I do podcasts. And we would meet roughly quarterly, and we were talking, and then my other friend, Kim Boucher, 
when I was training for the marathon with her, we started really digging deep on like what we could do locally for women and girls. And we started doing research and we came upon the most startling, startling statistics mm. that 1.6%, which now I, most people have heard of, but the 1.6% of all philanthropic giving that is directed towards women and girls serving nonprofits. We were shocked by this number out of Indiana University. We actually didn't believe it. Not only was it 1.6%, this included Every dollar that was given to all charitable giving, foundations, individuals, corporations, all charitable giving. And of that 1.6%, 30 to 40% is sent overseas, which is twice the rate of the other 98.4% that's not given to women and girls serving nonprofits. We concluded very quickly that there's a massive underinvestment philanthropically in women and girls serving nonprofits in our country. And then we looked around locally and we could not find a large, vibrant women's foundation like there were in 44 other states. So it became very clear how we could make an impact. We didn't do this because we thought it'd be fun or we thought it'd be exciting or we could make a difference. It was really filling a gap. Like we were stunned. And we thought we have to do something about this. So we created the Women's Foundation of Boston in January of 2017. And we've been growing ever since. And I attribute that to we were filling a gap. So we were doing something that wasn't being done that should have been done. And then also we're businesswomen. So we're using a business lens to really manage and grow. And I can't understate the importance of that. Yeah. I think so many nonprofits go under because, as you said, it's all about the passion and not enough about the business plan. Okay. So you've just mentioned the marathon. And you have Michelle Obama arms all over the place. Let me tell you, they are so beautiful. That's so funny. So talk to me a little bit about your marathon running and how long you've been doing that. Well... <laughs> That's a timely question because I hurt my knee and I was supposed to run the Covered Bridge Half Marathon oh. yesterday, but I didn't because my knee was not well. So truth be told, my daughter ran with my bib number. My daughter is an amazing ultra runner. She's run a 50 miler. So running a Covered Bridge Half Marathon in Woodstock, Vermont yesterday was like, like a, yeah, just like going for a, a jog. Yeah. Anyway, I've been running for a long, long, long time, but I did my first Boston Marathon was in 2010. I think I've run it four or so times. I ran the Chicago Marathon when my son was uh, at Northwestern. Okay, so why do you run? What do you love about it? Running is amazing. Running is like therapy and it's being it's outdoors. I mean, I love hiking and skiing and anything outdoors, particularly with my family. Speaking of family, and we've talked a little bit about your kids, but can you tell us a little bit about where you come from? And bring us into your family when you were growing up. What was that like? My parents divorced when I was very young. And so I was raised by my single mom, who did, I thought did an amazing job. With my step-siblings, there's six of us, and I'm number five. And uh, so it was a very, very active household in many ways. But my mom was a, a musician and a painter, my dad as well, and my brother's a musician and a painter, and there was a lot of art and music in my household. We had a very little black and white TV that rarely was put on, and if it was, it wasn't my choice what was on because I was not in the pecking order of who got to choose what was on TV. So I actually watched very little television. We did a lot of arts and crafts and were outside a lot. I feel very grateful that I was raised that way. 
And I, in turn, raised my kids that way. What values did your parents teach you that you pass along now to your own children? As I said, education is really was really, really important. And also honesty, integrity, and being love, basically. I always knew my parents loved me unconditionally, and I hope that I've pass it on to my children that they know that too. Well, we're getting into the last few questions for you. And the first one is the seeds of our gifts and our talents are planted early and we all need someone who sees our abilities and who believes in us. Who has that person been for you in your life? Other than my mom and my parents, I would say my husband. What is your message to women listening to this interview about financial independence, about the importance of education, about empowerment, about confidence, based on your experience so far? They all go hand in hand. With education comes financial independence, and with financial independence comes confidence. They're very, very, very connected. Confidence is so important, and I do think that There is a lot of work to be done in giving girls confidence. I think that there's a lot of things in modern, contemporary Internet culture that really eats away at that, and I don't know the answer to that. As I said, my daughter is going to be 28, so she didn't grow up with that so much, So, um, and I'm so grateful because that's a tough boulder to push up a hill. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I usually climb over obstacles. I'm really big problem solver. And when I come upon an obstacle, I just immediately figure out how to solve it. Let's solve this problem. And I lean on experts. And the Women's Foundation of Boston is a volunteer-led and run organization. So we have about 100 professional women, volunteers, who help us navigate challenges. So leaning on experts is so important. And people are always afraid. They feel like they have to know it all. It's such a weakness. Like acknowledging that you don't know the answer is such a strength because that gets you to, to the solution instead of pretending you know. So I'm big into problem solving. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It can be personal. It can be professional. Can you share that today? I would say one was actually from my husband who, when we were starting the Women's Foundation of Boston, he doesn't even probably remember this, but he said to me, when you're starting a business, whether for-profit or non-profit, you really need to surround yourself with optimists because you're going to have hurdles and you need everybody rah-rah, 100% in, this is going to work, or literally it's not going to work. And I feel that way about life in general. Now, whenever I've had like a hurdle that I had to get over with a family or whatever, it's always made me realize, wow, I really need to be around positive people. I just cannot be around negative people. Final question. Right now in this chapter in your life, what does success mean to you? True success, which I actually feel like we're having right now at the Women's Foundation of Boston and personally, professionally, is really about being good at something that you really love and that you're also having an impact. To get that trifecta where you're good at something that you really love that's also having an impact on others is really the sweet spot. And I think that is the pure definition of success. Well, I want to say thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story on the story behind her success. Thank you for having me, Candy. 
And that's the story behind her success for this week. My thanks to Christina Gordon. She's the co-founder of the Women's Foundation of Boston. Find out more about the mission to invest in the futures of women and girls at wfboston.org. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile, so if you know someone I should feature for the show, I would love for you to let me know about her. I really do read your emails, and many of the women listeners have pitched for the show have been inspiring additions to this series. So to nominate someone, just go to my website, candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. I'll have a new inspiring story for you next week. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it.